Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the World Soccer Talk podcast. I am your guest host, Richard Farley. Thank you very much for joining us. For the next few weeks, I'm going to be back in the saddle as Nipun Chopra is in India, earned a well-deserved vacation, first time back in India in a few years. I am going to be kind of taking the ship into May. On this episode of the show, I'm joined by Kartik Krishnayar. We're going to be talking about the Premier League results from this weekend, talking about the championship a little bit, taking our typical sojourn into Europe, and then looking toward the midweek action in the Premier League. Kartik, I think it's tempting to start at the King Power Stadium where there were a lot was a lot of controversy around the 2-2 draw between the league leaders Leicester and West Ham United. I'm just going to ex- I'm going to exercise some privilege here and talk about the bottom of the table first because it was just a huge weekend as far as the relegation picture is concerned. Yeah, it was uh, uh, um, a stunning weekend as far as the relegation picture is concerned. I guess maybe not because all both of those results could have been predicted, but they went the way of making this a much more exciting and interesting relegation fight. Uh, and we have a title race that we'll talk about later as well. So I guess for the neutrals, this was a good weekend. Yeah, it was a very good weekend, at least speaking as a neutral myself. I don't have a horse in the race between Norwich, Sunderland, and uh, Newcastle. Came into the weekend where Norwich had a four-point lead in that race for 17th place. Only one of those three teams are going to survive into the next Premier League season. Norwich had a chance to almost end this race car tick this weekend. They were hosting Sunderland at Carroll Road. Although they had lost last weekend to Crystal Palace, they had gotten points in the three previous games before that. And this ended up being a very one-sided result. Sam Allardyce, with his biggest win since becoming manager of Sunderland, helps produce a 3-0 result that gets the Black Hats within one point of the Canaries, still with a match in hand. Yeah, Jermaine Defoe and Fabio Barini especially good going forward in this game. Connecting well, linking up well. Barini's work rate, uh, the best I've seen in a long time. You have to wonder if Sunderland got fired up by their manager after DeAndre Yedlin was pushed into the field boards uh, about three minutes into the match, three or four minutes into the match, and Allardyce decided he wanted to take on the uh, entire Norwich bench, basically, <laughs> after this incident. And it was, it was a naughty foul. Uh, Yedlin is, is, is basically out of real estate. Shoving him into the field boards is only going to do one thing, right? It's going to injure him or it's going to enrage the other team. So really cynical foul. That seemed to have uh, stimulated a really good Sunderland effort. And, New- and Norwich, they've gone through these dips and, uh, and upsurges th- throughout the entire season. There have been, as I think randomly, 
just offhand about three different points in the season where Norwich has swung up, gotten a couple of results on the trot, and you thought, okay, they're going to be fine. And then they've gone weeks, in some cases months, without winning another game. And maybe we're back into one of those dips now. They had the little upsurge, the uptick. They were four points clear of Sunderland. They were, at the time, six or seven clear of... Uh, of Newcastle, they go to Crystal Palace, who they could actually uh, match on points, uh, end up level with on points if they win the match, and uh, they lose. They don't play particularly well. They didn't play as well as they had played the previous uh, couple weeks, and then uh, this game, they were completely outplayed. Now, Tim Close, uh, Tim Closer was out for this match, so that uh, certainly hurt them because he's been one of their better players in, in this recent uh, in that recent uptick of form. He's he has been very good ever since coming over during the winter window from the Bundesliga. Still, this was a really surprising result. We kind of thought Alex Neal had something figured out. You had talked about it on the midweek podcast that Sunderland, despite not winning this spring yet, had been playing reasonably well. But Norwich had actually been getting points. We talked about it. Seven points in their last four games coming into this one. So it's just shocking to me the magnitude of this result. You're at home. You're against a team that has, by record, played worse than you all year, and by form should be worse than you now. You give up a goal before halftime from the spot to Barini. Jermaine Defoe scores early in the second half, and Sunderland had, um, after Duncan Watmore's consolation very late, not consolation, insurance goal very late, uh, 3-0 victory. Just a very disappointing result for Canaries fans, and now they've really been not just pulled back towards 18th place, but I think you can argue, given that Sunderland has a match in hand, Newcastle has a match in hand, that their odds of going down at this point are better than their odds of staying up. They're on 31 points with four rounds left. Sunderland's on 30 points with five matches left. Newcastle United, however, is on 28 with five matches left also after they came up with a huge win this weekend. Kartik, I'm not surprised that the Magpies got a victory this weekend over visiting Swansea. I'm surprised that they won 3-0, though. Swansea's really poor. I think the the, the result against Chelsea last week was just uh, an aberration, quite frankly. They've been really, really poor for the bulk of this season. The only uh, only saving grace were were the couple games where uh, uh, Aline was in the hospital and Alan Curtis managed them, and uh, Gilfie Sigurdsson came up with uh, a couple key goals because uh, they looked just completely out of sorts in this match. They, they were not doing anything. There was one chance for Gomez maybe in the 75th or 80th minute, but other than that, Newcastle, I watched a lot of this game because the, the 3 p.m. Uh, UK time, 10, 10 a.m. Eastern time kickoffs weren't very compelling, the other games. <laughs> so I ended up watching a lot of this game, and uh, Newcastle basically lost it. It's the best I've seen Newcastle look in some time. I don't know if that means Rafa Benitez is having an impact or if it was Swansea. I guess we'll find out uh, in real short order when they take on Man City at St. James Park on Tuesday. So who were you more impressed by, Sunderland or Newcastle this week? And who actually, beyond their their score lines, which of those two teams actually played better? Oh, I think uh, Newcastle actually played better of the two. But hmm. again, Swansea, they've gotten to 40 points now, and they haven't played well in a long time. Um, it, it was one of those, those, those sitter games where if Newcastle was going to get out of this, they had to get three points. That having been said, they played really well. So, and, and the guys that we've criticized in the past, people like uh, like Townsend, were, were on their game. It, it was a it was a pretty comprehensive effort, and I think uh, Benitez Benitez being there at least has given their supporters some hope. Mm-hmm. And 
the negativity around the club isn't quite at the level it was a month or two ago, even though they're no closer to safety. In fact, they're closer to relegation now than they were at the point when uh, McLaren was, was uh, sacked, uh, just because of obviously being further on in the season and only having four matches left, or they have five matches left. But there seems to be a positive attitude from Newcastle supporters. I think there's a fatalism generally among Magpie supporters, and they have this sense that because Benitez has taken the job, they have this hope of getting out. Uh, that having been said, they still have to hope Sunderland, their, their great rivals, trip up because, uh, as I said, Sunderland, as I said on the last pod, Sunderland has played well for the last month, wasn't getting the results they needed. Now they've gotten a 3-0 win away from home. Uh, maybe maybe they're just going to push on out of this thing. That, that would be my hunch at this point, honestly. I think Newcastle and Norwich are still are going down, and Sunderland will get a few more results. They might even get to 30, 37 or 38 points and, and be safe. Newcastle got a goal before halftime from Jamal Lascelles. Two goals late, Musa Sissoko, Andros Townsend. For 82 minutes of this match, the game was within at most one goal. So maybe a little bit uh, deceiving the scoreline there. Still, Newcastle got two late goals to put it away. 3 nothing was the result. They have five matches left. Sunderland have five matches left. They both have seven wins on the year. The one difference... Two of the losses that went to Newcastle's column ended up in draws in the Black Cats column. They Black Cats are only one point back of Norwich, Newcastle three points back. Well, we've put it off long enough. Let's go to the top of the table and let's talk about Sunday's match at the King Power Stadium, one in which Jamie Vardy gave with his 22nd goal of the season, gave Leicester a first half lead, 1-0, one that took into intermission, but then 11 minutes into the second half, Jamie Vardy picks up a second yellow card, diving to try to draw a foul on Obon, uh, West Ham's Obana, uh, playing with 11 men against 10, West Ham Gets um well some controversy goes their way. Andy Carroll converts from the spot in the 84th minute. Aaron Cresswell with a beautiful goal in the 86th minute. Two one, they're up going into stoppage time. Then five minutes into extra time, more controversy. Uh, there was even controversy before then on a non call towards the end of regular time. But Leonardo Ujoa ends up equalizing from the spot for Leicester. Two two was the result here between the Foxes and the Hammers. So there's a lot there, Kartik, to break down. Why don't we start with Jamie Vardy's second yellow card, picked up 11 minutes into the second half. To what extent do you agree with the call? I could see what Moss was uh, seeing. I think it was a dive. I think he embellished uh, a lot of the... He exaggerated the contact, I should say. But it was harsh to, when he was sitting on a yellow to give him a second yellow. That, I have to say. But, you know what? Letter of the law, guys are diving. And, of course, we're hearing... Uh, this sort of critique, of, oh, he never dives. Maybe because he's an English player, right? <laughs> so he never dives. Even his manager, who's, of course, Italian, Claudio Ranieri, comes out and says, J Jamie Vardy never dives. But it was clearly uh, an attempt to, to con the official. Yeah. So that's a point of emphasis in officiating in England in particular now, is that if you're trying to put one over on the official, you don't get the call. And, and, and the reality is, Leicester... They have these two magicians. Well, they have one magician in, in Mares, and then they've got uh, this just great counterattacking goal scorer in, in Vardy, who have repeatedly drawn penalties this season by, in, in, in some cases, exaggerating contact or have tried to draw penalties. Uh, and and in, I think it actually, in one of the other games, Leicester dropped points in the, the, the game where uh, they lost to Arsenal at, at the death after Danny Simpson had been sent off. 
Morris should there should have been a penalty called when Morris went down. Uh, if you remember when it was 1-0 and he was taken down in the area by the Arsenal defender and it would have been 2-0 before the Simpsons sending off. I think by exaggerating the contact the way he did, uh, he ended up not getting the call uh, because the referee saw the dive and decided not to book him. But that's the sort of thing where referees now are, are being trained in England to look for the embellishment or the exaggeration from attacking players. And Vardy uh, has done it one time too many, probably. Hmm. It's weird that we're going to have to start getting more precise with our language because these type of instances are happening more often. And with the technology we have and as much time as we have to dwell on them, we have to start making distinctions between instigating contact and then exaggerating contact and then outright diving. And those things aren't mutually exclusive, but I think it does help inform what happened with Jamie Vardy on Sunday. He clearly tried to instigate contact. And, and did. It's just a matter of whether you think that contact justified a whistle. I don't think it did. But did Jamie Vardy then exaggerate the contact that happened? I think so. Did he dive? Well, that probably depends on whether you think you can dive when you, somebody has actually made contact with you. And I think all of these, these things are important because if you do outright dive, if there's no contact, if there's no reason for you to be going down, if you actually just simulate it, then you probably should get a card. If you instigate contact and then go to ground, I don't think that's the same as diving. And I think people can reasonably make the claim that that's what Vardy did, that he didn't dive, he just instigated contact, went to ground, and there shouldn't have been a card. Yeah, I, I think I can buy that. I think that that's right. I think uh, what you do is you, you just play on at that point. Mm -hmm. And uh, he's still carrying a yellow card, but Leicester is still up 1-0, and we know they, they tend to close out these games if they're up 1-0 and they have 11 men. Look, they haven't... This may sound like me giving a qualifier statistic, and uh, obviously now uh, title race is on, everybody's excited, but Leicester are still top of the table for now. But the, last, uh, uh, the last six goals they've conceded, uh, and the last uh, uh, three games they've dropped points in, over the course of now two and a half months, because Leicester, of course, have not dropped a whole lot of points uh, when everybody expected them to fold, have either come with them down to 10 men or without Conte on the pitch. They haven't given up a single goal with Conte on the pitch uh, when they are on 11, when they have 11 men. Wow. That's that's amazing. Yeah, they haven't given up a goal, I think, since late January. Wow. Uh, with, under that scenario. So uh, I, I have to believe if Vardy had kept himself on the pitch, they would have seen out the game. Yeah, possibly. 1-0. Now, I mean, I also have to say, even though I kind of gave that explanation I just did, if somebody wants to tell me that Vardy did exaggerate the contact, because we did see at some point he kind of puts two feet on the ground and launches himself. Uh, so I can accept that explanation, too. I just, I'm just not sure this is very cut and dry. And I think that in cases where contact is instigated, you could make the claim that it's almost impossible to dive at that point or fit the technical definition of a dive. But this one, we saw West Ham come back with those two goals. Really can't understate how good Aaron Cresswell's goal was to give West Ham a 2-1 lead. Leonardo Ujoa ends up equalizing in stoppage time. But the star after all of this, between the two penalty calls in the last few minutes of the game, the one penalty call that didn't get made towards the end of stoppage time that could have given Leicester a penalty kick six minutes earlier, we got to know the name John Moss. Yeah, it's kind of a cliche, Kartik, that once you start talking about a referee's name, once you know a referee's name, he's probably done something wrong. But in this instance, that is absolutely true because 
I didn't know who John Moss was 48 hours ago. <laughs> I mean, I knew the name, but... Like, yeah, you, you definitely know more officials' names than I do. I, I I should probably know all of them. But in this case, I'm probably more like the layperson where when I saw the name John Moss, I was like, I've never heard of that person before. This can't be good. Yeah. Um, that having been said, I had no opinion of him one way or another. I mean, there are some officials we have opinions of. Klattenberg, I think he's a, an official a lot of people have opinions of. Um, um, Mike Dean is an, is an official a lot of people have opinions of. Oh, yeah. Here in the United States, there are a number of them, uh, particularly Mark. Uh, right now, Mark Geiger and Ted Uncle are the two most uh, uh, prominent ones. But uh, John Moss was just kind of this random official that, that does a lot of Premier League games until uh, Sunday. And now he's a household name for everyone. More, more importantly, perhaps, than the suspension coming from the red card, because Lester do, do play Swansea next, is that for their trip to Old Trafford, it appears like uh, Vardy might be suspended for mm-hmm. um, disorderly conduct. There is some, uh, uh, some talk in the, in the British press. He might even be suspended for their, their game against Everton at the KP, which would leave him perhaps with only one match left in this season, which is the trip to Stamford Bridge at the end of the year, which everybody has thrown up as a tasty fixture. Yeah. Ranieri going back to Chelsea. I, I, I want to get into the Chelsea angle in, in a few minutes uh, when we spark, talk about Spurs, because they play both Spurs and Leicester. And I think uh, if you know Chelsea supporters the way I do, and I think you do, Richard, for whatever reason, they loathe Tottenham, Tottenham more than they loathe Arsenal or Man United or Man City or any of these clubs, or even more than they loathe West Ham. So uh, I, there will be a, quite a bit of no, a number of Chelsea fans, I believe, that, that support Leicester in that game. <laughs> if it means that Spurs don't get the title uh, at the Brits. So it could, could be really, uh, we talk about surreal things going on uh, this season. That could be the most surreal thing of all, because that's, that's the final match day. Uh, we'll talk about Chelsea again in a little bit, but based on what we saw on Saturday from Chelsea, I'm not sure there's a lot of reason to expect they're going to put up much, up much of a fight against any decent team between now and the re- end of the regular season. But you mentioned Tottenham. Let's talk about them because they are the ones that benefited from what happened on Sunday at the King Power Stadium. On Monday at the Britannia against a Stoke side that people have been talking up all year, Tottenham put all that talk to shame. A beautiful ninth-minute goal from Harry Kane got Spurs off on the right track. And after a dominant display throughout, Spurs finally broke through in the second half with goals from Deli Ali, a second from Kane, and then a second from Deli Ali. A number of other chances could have come good, including Deli Ali in the second half, putting a shot into an open net against the bottom of the right post. Tottenham wins this one 4 to nothing. One of the, in terms of chances, one of the more lopsided games of the year. And Kartik, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that even though they're now they're still chasing Leicester, Tottenham at the moment is the best team in England. Yeah, I think that that's that's right. They've been they they've probably been the best team in England over the course of the season, but they started the season pretty poorly. I had tipped them for big things before the season and looked like a complete fool after the first month of the season. And you wonder if there's just these missed opportunities. Their inability to beat Arsenal either time they played them, for instance, is a missed opportunity. They're uh, they're lost to West Ham. Missed opportunity. There are some uh, matches we're going to look at similarly for Leicester if they don't close this title out. Like Leicester dropping points against Aston Villa, who have already yeah. been relegated. We didn't talk about Villa in the relegation fight because they're they've already they're gone. And uh, same same thing with the game where Morris missed a penalty against Bournemouth at home, and they drew with Bournemouth. 
at the KP Stadium. There, there were some missed opportunities. Some games where Lester left points on the table. Well, but... D- Danny Simpson picking up that second yellow card at the Emirates. Oh, yeah. There's no question in, in my mind, in the minds of not just myself and, and, and maybe you, Richard, but lots of other analysts, like even Craig Burley, Shaka Hislop, these guys on ESPN FC, that Leicester would have closed that game out. They would have won the game 1-2-0. One, uh, one oh. That would have been it for Arsenal at that point. You could say Ars- the same thing about Vardy diving this weekend, too. Or, sorry, <laughs> we just had this big discussion about whether it was a dive or not. Right, Va- Vardy drawing a second yellow card this weekend. But Spurs, the, the point being, Spurs have left points on the table this season, and they're going to need to get to 80 points and hope Leicester don't get to 81 points to win this title. So they're going to have to win out. Uh, the the, the f- final four remaining fixtures look pretty straightforward, except for that trip to Chelsea. I know we're going to get Chelsea-Man City in a minute. I still think Chelsea are going to get up for that game because it is Spurs. Their supporters are going to be much more engaged for that game, and they're going to be engaged for the Leicester game as well if, if uh, there's a possibility of Leicester uh, denying Spurs the title going into that match. I think uh, Chelsea supporters, uh, who have already turned on their club largely, will probably get behind Leicester City in that match. And and use that Ranieri as their manager as an excuse for just the, the fact that they don't want to see Spurs win anything. It's the, mm-hmm. real, it's the real thing there. Yeah, maybe they will use that as an excuse. I think it's more important whether the players use that as an excuse. We've seen some comments from Gary Cahill this week where he was very concerned about the team's lack of effort. We've heard the cliche players-only meeting thrown around in the last couple of days. It'll be interesting to see how a Chelsea team that doesn't have much to play for responds over their last five matches of the season. At the top of the table, Leicester has 73 points. Even with the results over the last couple of days, they are five up on Tottenham. Both teams have four matches left to play in the season, and Tottenham has an eight-point gap on Manchester City and Arsenal, although both of those teams still have a match in hand. We're going to focus on those two teams as well as Manchester United in a moment, as those three teams really make up the fight for third and fourth place at this point. But Kartik, I want to shift our focus to something we talked about midweek, something that affects your favorite team, and that's the UEFA Champions League draw that happened at the end of last week. This is probably the draw that you wanted, Kartik. It's probably the draw that Real Madrid fans also wanted. On one half of the bracket, there is Bayern Munich and Atletico Madrid. An amazing clash of styles. Uh, An Atletico Madrid team that just took down Pep Guardiola's old side facing Pep Guardiola's new side. But as far as you and your fandom and uh, Premier League fans are concerned, the interesting draw is Manchester City versus Real Madrid. I'll let you uh, say what you'd like about this, but you have to feel like you got a fortunate draw here as far as the options were concerned. Oh, yeah. Obviously, the three options, I think, Real Madrid is is the... I hate to say the weakest because it's relative, right? They're, they're the, the least uh, dangerous of the three sides. Uh, Athleti, very difficult to break down, very well organized. Bayern just have probably too much firepower for City. Uh, Real Madrid have so many question marks uh, out there right now, and... and uh, so many poor performances, even in this Champions League, and they were very fortunate to get past Wolfsburg. So I think most Manchester City fans were happy with the draw. I think most fans of English football who want to see Manchester City be successful were happy with the draw, uh, as they were with uh, with Liverpool avoiding Sevilla and, Sh- and Shakhtar in the Europa League. So uh, it, it is odd because the English clubs continue to perform poorly in Europe, 
I don't think there's any question about it, but the coefficient now is going to be skewed, and England's not going to lose that fourth spot, maybe now for a few seasons, because of these runs that Manchester City and Liverpool have gone on, which are essentially outliers from the way the rest of England has performed in Europe for the last two or three seasons. Hmm. You know, but to get past Real Madrid, Manchester City, and I, I think they've got a very good chance to beat Real Madrid. You mentioned that Real Madrid barely got past Wolfsburg, and I think Manchester City is a better team than Wolfsburg. But Manchester City would have to do something that no non-Spanish team has done this year. It's remarkable, uh, but no team outside of La Liga has eliminated a team from Spain from European competition this year. It's all been knockout round eliminations in Spain versus Spain ties, or in the case of Valencia and Sevilla, where they got eliminated from Champions League, they went down into Europa League and then either on one hand still alive or got eliminated by another Spanish team. I don't know that there's anything that we can take from that to read into this matchup, but it is very interesting that maybe some of the perception we have of Spanish teams is actually, well, actually understates their value considering no other leagues are managing to eliminate these teams. Right, so that, that applies both to Liverpool and Manchester City at this, at this stage in their respective competitions in, in uh, Europa League for Liverpool and, and Champions League for Manchester City. I would remind our listeners, and we're going back about a decade now, but 2007, uh, 2008, uh, although I guess 2008, no English club was eliminated in Champions League by a non-English club because the final and the feed between two <laughs> English clubs. Uh, and then t- 2007 and 2009, um, 2007, 2008, and 2009, prior to the semifinals that year, no English club had been eliminated in Champions League by a non-English club. And then uh, Milan eliminated uh, Manchester United and Liverpool, Liverpool in the final in succession in 2007. 2009, Barcelona won the final. So these things tend to, to, to uh, end at some point. But uh, that, is, that is an extremely, uh, extremely good point about Spanish uh, clubs. And no Spanish club has been eliminated by a non-Spanish club. Uh, that having been said, I think Real Madrid is a prime candidate for just elimination it's it's really unfathomable to see to see this real madrid team as bad as they are potentially in the final that having been said you know at letty who feel like two years ago they should have been able to see out that game and had they not had to make that quick substitution with costa getting injured and uh, and having to put david via in six minutes into the match simeone probably ruse that decision to start costa one of the few bad decisions he's made over the course of his management career, if they got Real Madrid in a final, I think they would be licking their chops because it's a it's a Madrid derby. Uh, Atleti might be uh, might, might already have won the league by that point, uh, the way things are going in La Liga. I know you'll get to that in a moment. And uh, I just think uh, Real Madrid might be better off losing to Manchester City than and if they end up facing Bayern and losing to Bayern. It's not a big deal. But if they go into a final against Atleti, I am predicting right now Real Madrid will be shut down. They will get one or two sniffs at scoring maximum, and they'll get beat, uh, as they probably should have been two seasons ago. Uh, Mm. But this time they will get beat, and they will get beat comprehensively. Hmm. So again, on one side of the bracket in Champions League, Bayern Munich against Atletico. I think most people would concede those are the two strongest teams left in this competition. But one of Real Madrid and Manchester City are going to be in the final in Milan in May. A Europa League, you already alluded to it. Liverpool drew Villarreal, a very good Villarreal team that has played all of the top teams in Spain tough throughout the year. On the other side of the bracket, Sevilla versus Shakhtar Donetsk. We could have... 
Spain versus Spain finals in both of these competitions. I guess you could even argue that the Spanish team might be slightly favored in all of these matchups. I'm not sure that Real Madrid, even if they are slightly favored, should be looked at as more than a coin flip uh, favorite against Manchester City. Kartik, speaking of Manchester City, now let's focus on the fight for fourth in the Premier League. I guess it's also the fight for third now because after the results this weekend, Manchester City has passed Arsenal on the table. Arsenal drawing at home against Crystal Palace 1-1, while Manchester City 3-0 victory at Stamford Bridge over Chelsea. Let's talk about Arsenal, Kartik, because this just continu- <laughs> this just continues the slide that Arsenal has, has experienced throughout 2016. It's a little surprising to me that the person that was responsible for this result, in addition to an attack that couldn't score more than one goal on Crystal Palace, was their most reliable player this year. Petr Cech let them down uh, with that goal. Yeah, he, he was obstructed with his view, I, I suppose, but he reacted late, no doubt. Uh, Out of Bayor made a nice little move, uh, probably sweet for him, right, against Arsenal at the yeah. Emirates. He, he, uh, he wanted that ball back, though. He wanted Velocity to give him that ball back. Oh, if Velocity had given him that ball back, we'd be talking about Arsenal losing this game. Uh, so, uh, the the one, uh, you're talking about the later counterattack, where... Uh, well, I guess there's multiple examples here because even on Balassi's goal, Adebayor plays a big part of going wide, holding the ball up, laying it off, and then uh, basically drawing the defender so Balassi can come in on his right foot. Yeah, I mean, this is a problem with Adebayor because he, he basically hasn't played football in a year and a half, but suddenly when he's at the Emirates and he's playing Arsenal, he looks he looks like a, a world-class footballer. He looked very motivated. He God. was very good in the 30 minutes he yeah, was Yeah, God, God love him. It was, yeah. it was spectacular. He lives for this, right? So this yeah. is—he uh, he was probably the most uh, pleased person uh, in London about this result. Yeah. Uh, other than other than maybe Alan Pardew, but uh, yeah, mistake by Petr Cech, and then uh, Wenger's response is to put uh, Theo Walcott on, and Walcott gives the ball away. Uh, it's just—I think—I think Walcott's time is up at Arsenal, and th- this is uh, uh, more of the malaise of of, uh, of what we've seen this season. They are now. Uh, uh, and again, we've talked about Arsenal finishing third or fourth every year, but they're finishing behind Chelsea and Man City and Man United those years. They are now 10 points behind Spurs. I think the debate and the discussion about this season and Wenger is going to be dramatically different than it has been after all these previous third and fourth place finishes because they are 10 points behind Spurs. I repeat that. No, they're going to they're, finish they're behind eight, Spurs. They're eight points behind Spurs. They're eight points behind them? Yeah. After, after today, after today's result. Um, okay, they're eight points behind yeah. them, sorry. Okay, they're probably going to finish behind them regardless. Right? Oh, yeah. They have a game yeah, in yeah. hand. So, uh, St. Tottenham's Day and all of that, that, that fun stuff Gunnar fans like to do. And and remember, there are three times in the last decade where uh, where Spurs have gone into the final day of the season with an opportunity to finish ahead of Arsenal and have failed. This time, I think uh, it'll be done and dusted before the final day of the season. So that's, that is another point of discussion. I think... Uh, what I see from this Arsenal team is very fleeting moments of quality going forward. Uh, El Nenny and Coquelin were pretty good as the holding pair until uh, Adebayo came in and kind of changed the game uh, from Palace's side. Uh, they were dominating the, the, that midfield prior to that. But um, it, going forward, Sanchez had a nice goal, great, great ball from Danny Welbeck. Yes. Uh, but uh, Ozil is, is drifting in and out of games. Um, Iwobi uh, had a bright start, but now he's looking at times very kind of isolated and frustrated. And he's a young player. Uh, there are too many mistakes from their fullbacks. Uh, the back two, the back, the center back pairing isn't really working anymore. 
I, I still like Koscielny, but they're going to have to get him another partner. E- either of the other two guys, uh, Gabriel or Murtisacker, are, are not are not at this level. Uh, Murtisacker's past it. Gabriel is never going to be at the level of, of, a, of an ambitious club. And uh, then you have a, a mistake from Petr Cech. Uh, this is also something about goalkeeping, Richard. You can go 80 minutes with nothing to do. But then when that first ball comes to you, and there's that first uh, attack that you're going to face that's that's uh, uh, a deadly serious uh, opportunity for the other team, you better be on your toes. And it seems like Czech, because he hadn't really faced much, was, was, not, uh, was, was not engaged in the game. And he's very fortunate that next one, Velocity didn't lay off for Adebayor because Velocity lays that off for Adebayor we're talking about a 2-1 loss for Arsenal. You mentioned something early when in your comments about Arsene Wenger and how the conversation this summer is going to be different. I think it's going to be different not only because Tottenham and Leicester are the teams that passed them, but just because of the nature of this season, so many things broke Arsenal's way, and they still have found a way to go into these last this last month of the season, not only fighting for fourth, but fighting for fourth against teams that aren't very good. They're only four points ahead of Manchester United at this point. So they have to be considered favorites to win the Wenger Trophy again. But it just feels different. <laughs> it feels like such a failure. And I think the Arsenal is left with two choices. Two choices that we've outlined before, but this summer it's going to be really stark that they need to make a choice. Uh, one is to move on from Arsene Wenger. Objectively, the results aren't there. He has had the resources. Everything broke right this year, and his management of the team just didn't put them in position to win this title. The other one is to keep Arsene Wenger and just basically stop talking about yourself as if you're a perennial title contender. Value the things that Arsene Wenger brings to the club, or the contributions he's made in the past, and make the case implicitly, or whenever somebody explicitly asks you, that something something's transcend the results. That we're happy competing for titles every once in a while, and winning FA Cups every once in a while. We're happily merely making it to Champions League, but we would rather be known as a club that is loyal to this man that means a lot to us, rather than a club that competes for titles. The problem with that is that I don't think fans really feel that way. I think if they are forced to think that way, they'll adjust. But obviously the rhetoric that we hear from fans, that we've heard from fans ever since Arsenal's great rebuilding project commenced with uh, Thierry Henry's departure has been about one day Arsenal ascending to their heights again. Unfortunately, I don't think either of those choices are going to be made because this is still an organization that is owned and the attitude in the organization is dictated by Stan Kroenke. And as far as the business interest maintain stability, I don't know that there's going to be a huge impetus to change, which is going to be hugely frustrating for Arsenal fans this summer. Kartek, let's talk about Manchester City. They are now in third place. They are also only four points clear of Manchester United. However, they've now won three in a row. They have the vastly superior goal difference to Arsenal. So any kind of tie in the standings between those two teams, it's going to go to the citizens. And perhaps most encouragingly, between their play in Champions League and their result this weekend, a 3-0 win at Stamford Bridge, Manchester City is playing better than they have since the first five or six weeks of the season. That has to be incredibly encouraging for you. Yeah, and I, I certainly think it's, there's a direct correlation with the return of Kevin De Bruyne and uh, Yaya Torre being fit and his games being managed. You notice he didn't play in Champions League, but was, was fresh and ready, and, and I thought it was very good against Chelsea. Uh, you can only play the opponent that turns up, right? I mean, Chelsea was... Uh, this is about as bad as a team has been. Uh, there have been... Uh, Aston Villa is going is going down. They have 16 points. 
And uh, they may not make it to 20 points. They probably won't make it to 20 points. I don't remember Villa being as bad. Maybe the game against Liverpool, right? Where they got beaten 7-1 or something. Uh, as bad as Chelsea was in this game. I mean, this was embarrassing how yeah. poor Chelsea was. And I, and I think Keenan now um, has to turn the page on some of these veteran players. Get get some of the youngsters like Kennedy. Lost his cheek, started this game. Kennedy, Miazga, um, some of the others, an opportunity to play these last few games so that Conte has some data points to work with when he comes in over the summer, because uh, certainly this game where he started a lot of the veterans besides Loftus cheek was a, was an embarrassing performance. There's no other way to put it in. And uh, again, I mean, Manchester city's not the most clinical side in front of goal. We've talked about this for a couple of seasons. Now uh, this scoreline could have only have been worse. It only would have been worse. Three nil was uh, as insane as it sounds. Uh, a flattering score, score like to Chelsea. I, I know the first time these two uh, teams met earlier in the season, much earlier in the season, Jose Mourinho was still managing Chelsea at the time. He called 3-0 to Man City at, at the Etihad, a fake scoreline. And yeah, Manchester City <laughs> were a better that. team, right? Uh, but, there were, but there were moments of quality from Chelsea in that match. This game, yeah. there was nothing. I mean, this was terrible. No, it's just, it's, this is what people have been talking about for the last couple months. How does Chelsea play when they don't have anything to play for anymore? And, the early returns on that are very discouraging for Chelsea fans who, maybe unlike the team or the players, many of whom maybe are consi- going to consider moving on next year, Chelsea fans too, in addition to Conte, I think want some reason to be positive going into next year. Want some reason to think that they can challenge for the top four next year. At this point, it looks like there are just going to be a lot of questions about this team come June. Through 33 rounds, Manchester City is sitting on 60 points. They're 13 back of Leicester, so there's not going to be a late title challenge. They're 8 back of Tottenham. It doesn't really matter if they catch second place. Obviously, Manchester City's focus is going to be on Champions League at this point. Arsenal has 60 points also, also having played 33 games. They are 6 to the worst in goal difference with Manchester City, though. So Arsenal's main concern now is Manchester United. Manchester United, 33 matches played. 56 points, they're four back of Arsenal. Their goal difference means that they're going to have to fully pass Arsenal. Manchester United is only plus 10, Arsenal is plus 22. In that way, it's kind of disappointing Manchester United didn't put up a more impressive result against Aston Villa this weekend. one to nothing victory, thanks to Marcus Rashford's 32nd minute goal. At the same time, Manchester United would need three or four blowouts to catch Arsenal. I think the more... Informative question here, Kartik, is did we see anything from Manchester United that makes us believe that over their last five matches of the season, they can go on the kind of run that can really make this into a nightmare campaign for Arsenal? Well, Rooney's back in the team and he played pretty well. Uh, but they were playing Villa, right, who have now been relegated with that result. Yet, the the reality is, if anyone was going to score a goal in the last 10 minutes before stoppage time, when United did almost add a second, it was going to be Villa. So... Um, yeah, there's just this lack of killer instinct, isn't there? In this they're just finding more and more ways to convince us they're not very good. Right. So I don't, I don't know how many more times we have to say that. If Manchester United does end up in fourth place, it's going to say more about Arsenal than it does Manchester United. Either way, Manchester United needs to go into the summer and spend a lot of money again, uh, even if they sneak into fourth place. If Arsenal ends up being caught by Manchester United, it would be a huge indictment not only of this year's performance, but everything that Arsene Wenger has built over this last decade. Kartik, let's take a break from Premier League action. We'll come back and uh, briefly talk about the games we haven't mentioned yet, as well as look forward to the midweek slate. Let's jump back over to the continent, where 
surprisingly, the most interesting race in Europe is now in Spain. Barcelona is now four matches without a win, three losses in a row after, I would say, a hard luck loss at home to Valencia this weekend. Uh, 2-0 result for Los Che. 2-1 result. Sorry about yeah, that. Yeah, they got a late goal. For Los Che allows Atletico Madrid to move into a tie for first place. Atletico had a 3-0 victory against Granada. They're now on 76 points and one point back after their 5-1 drubbing of Hetafe is Real Madrid. This is just shocking to me, Karchik, because Barcelona for so long, leading into this month, was the best team in Europe. We were starting to compare them to the best teams from the Pep Guardiola era. They have clearly hit a wall. Their lack of depth at attack is clearly hurting them. And at this point, with five matches left in the uh, in the division, in the league, although they still have Copa del Rey to play for, uh, it, it really looks like... I don't know. I think I think I would consider them the third favorite out of the three teams vying for the title at this point. Yeah, I think I would too. They they have not looked clinical going forward. Uh, you know, they keep the ball right, but uh, and Pep had made a comment a year or so ago about Tiki Taka and how he he doesn't like Tiki Taka. He, he's into possession with a purpose, and I think Enrique's the same way. But the last few weeks. It's more looked more like the ticky tacker, right? They're just passing, 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 but not in the final third. The the passes are, are going wayward, or uh, a guy is out of position, uh, or, or the finishing is poor, and they're very susceptible on the counter. In, in midfield, there seems to be um, some real problems. Uh, obviously, uh, Alves was dropped this week, but Jordi Alba is not playing well. Uh, he's he hasn't been playing well f- in this entire stretch of. Uh, I guess we would say it's five matches, right? If you include the uh, the two games against Atleti in the um, mm-hmm. in the uh, or, or European at least Cup, yeah, you definitely have to include the second one at least. Well, well, yeah, you have to include the first one too because they 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 played poorly in that match. If Torres doesn't get sent off, the tie might have been done there. It would have been one yeah. nil at the Camp Nou, and they would have gone back to. Uh, no, we're really, and just shut yeah, it down. we're really talking about a, a streak that dates back to the international break in um, March. So we're we're going on a month now, a good solid month where they just have not played well. But there was no sign of this before that. That's the thing. You, you know, sometimes when we talk about Arsenal's declines and we talk about uh, Manchester City and Manchester United going through these wobbles constantly, there are clear signs even in games they win. There was no sign of this happening to Barcelona. And now it, I think... I think it's psychological. It's in their head. Uh, the elimination from Champions League has left them unmotivated. And I think you're right. They're third favorites. I haven't looked at the remaining games. But I, I have to think that Letty is not going to concede many goals. Uh, there's the added, I guess, complication, if you will, of Real Madrid and Letty both being alive in Europe and Barca being out of Europe. Imagine the irony of that. Yes. But uh, I don't know. I think it's probably Letty first. Real second, Barca third. I mean, that's my odds on winning it. Well, two years ago when Atletico and Real Madrid were both alive in Europe, still Atletico ended up winning the title. Real Madrid ended up winning Champions League. Barcelona had to settle for it. Uh, right, and, and Atletico had eliminated uh, yeah. Barca that year in Champions League as well. Yep. Uh, Real Madrid also won Copa del Rey that year, and Tata Martino lost his job. Uh, the one explanation that's being floated around in Spain, and it makes a little bit of sense because people are really concentrating on the attack and the tired legs of that triumvirate that really carries the team when things are good, is the fact that 
Come that international break last month, they seem to lose rhythm, and you have three prominent South American players that are going back to South America, doing World Cup qualifying matches during the short uh, March break. And when Lionel Messi and Neymar and Luis Suarez comes back, they're a little bit more tired. They've done that huge amount of travel, and now they've got to go and compete in Champions League against Atletico Madrid, a team that will just run you into the ground. It's an interesting theory. It's impo- it's almost impossible to prove, but it does go back to the lack of depth they have in attack, and maybe they should have gone out and got somebody like Nolito during the transfer window. Kartik, let's switch over to Germany, where the title race has opened up a little bit. Bayern Munich is now seven points up on Borussia Dortmund with four matches remaining. Both teams had three nil victories this weekend. Bayern over Borussia's main rival, Schalke, and then Borussia Dortmund over Hamburg. The big news in the Bundesliga, though, is a record-setting mark by an American. Kartik, I'll go ahead and let you explain uh, what the record was and the significance of it, because this is somebody that you've taken particular interest in over the last two months. Yeah, Christian Pulisic, who we've talked about a lot on this show, uh, the young American, 17 years old, from Hershey, Pennsylvania, went over to Germany about now about 14 months ago, signed by Jurgen Klopp uh, when he was at uh, still at Dortmund. That's why there's all these rumors that link Pulisic to uh, to Liverpool. I think he, I think he's he's comfortable where he is right now. I don't know. If we want to take him to the Liverpool environment yet, but he's 17 years old. He's worked his way into the Dortmund team, which is one of the better teams in Europe. He got his third start uh, in the Bundesliga on Saturday against Hamburg and scored. Uh, he scored the opening goal, uh, the initial goal, the game-winning goal, too, in, in this case. Uh, short corner that he took. He was taking the corners, and uh, uh, ball worked its way back to him. Uh, really well-executed play, and he finishes. And uh, Thomas Tuchel has shown a lot of faith in Pulisic, and he is now the youngest non-German goal scorer in the history of the Bundesliga. That, that, that is absolutely... That's, an, uh, that's amazing. That's amazing. This is a kid who, uh, as I said, 18 months ago was still playing youth soccer in, in Hershey, Pennsylvania. Amazing. So you were asking this before the show, and I think it's another thing where there's no answers, but it's interesting to think about. How do we put, how do we put these accomplishments? Accomplishments seems weird because it's not like he's scoring tons of goals, but I think just even getting regular time for this team at this point, given the prominence of Dortmund, given the talent in the squad, given his age, is an accomplishment in addition to the, the goals that he scored. What kind of context do we put these in? Because it is a relatively short period of time here. We've seen young Americans get this kind of spotlight before. It, but there does seem to be something different about Pulisic in that it's not like a Freddie Adu type of thing where we've been tracking him for years and now are invested in the story. It's somebody that it seems like there's kind of a more organic growth here. Yeah, there are guys that that get games at a young age in Europe. Never, no, no, never anyone this young. Never a guy at seventeen, and never with a club this big, but that have gotten games and then eventually flame out. They don't take their opportunities. They fall out of favor. They just uh, they just fade away. And there's so many Americans. Uh, I could go through a long list. In fact, the article I wrote last week about Billisic has a list of some of those guys that that's happened to. Uh, this just seems so different, and I have to say, we're in uncharted territory. I know people are starting to make comparisons. There really is no comparison. We haven't had an American player. We've been waiting for decades to have a guy that's this good at this young age at a big, big club. It hasn't happened before. We've had guys in the systems, right? We've had a, uh, Jonathan Spector and, and Kenny Cooper and, and Neil 
Ivan Karaski and all these guys in the uh, in the United system and Frankie Simic at, at Arsenal and, and guys in the Bayern system, Julian Green, etc. But we've never had, uh, other than John O'Brien at Ajax, and he bloomed a little later, and he was a great player until his injuries caught up with him. Uh, maybe that's the only comparison, and if Pulisic ends up being as good as O'Brien but stays healthy, even though he plays a different position, then I think we've got a really good one on our hands because O'Brien... Uh, I will remind our listeners of this. Landon Donovan says he's the best player he's ever played with. He was the best American yeah. player. He's just a guy uh, that had, whose career was cut short, retired before the age of 30 because of injuries. But uh, when you look at Pulisic, there really is no comparison we can make. We have never had an American at this young an age, or even under the age of 20 or 21, and he's 17, playing at a big club, playing regularly at a big club, and you keep, I keep th- pinching myself and thinking, okay, he's going to make a critical mistake. Uh, he's going to fall out of favor. He's going to be back in the reserves. He's going to be back with uh, the Dortmund uh, uh, under-19 team. It hasn't happened. I mean, in fact, now he's starting important games in the Bundesliga. It, it's, uh, it's really crazy to see. Yeah, you mentioned Julian Green, and I think that's a really good comparison point because by the time Julian Green was this age, he was starting to get on the fringe of getting some actual time for Bayern, and it didn't come for another year there. But people started paying attention to him, looking at the numbers he was putting up with the youth teams and the reserve teams, and really getting excited about him. But what's different is that not very many people actually got to see him play in games because he wasn't playing for Bayern's main team. Uh, There really wasn't that much known about him as far as the type of player that he was. We were really having to go on the word of these kind of American soccer abroad experts that tend to hype up a lot of different players because, quite frankly, that's that's their business basically to report on. Well, right, you know, that's been going on. I, I don't want to uh, take shots at any of those guys. Some of those guys are my friends and your friends, but they've been hyping some guys uh, over the course of the last ten years. You know, guys like Zach Whitbread and Frank Seamick, Some of these names I mentioned earlier, uh, I think largely got overhyped because of those writers. Yeah, and so the difference here is that we can actually watch Christian Pulisic play. He's actually breaking into a first team, a very talented first team. We see the type of player he is. We see who he's competing against. We see him putting, uh, producing results. We see the type of players he's beating out for playing time. So this isn't just a matter of reading an 800-word profile and trying to extrapolate that. We can actually see this guy play. And while I'm not sure that means he's necessarily going to be a huge success, because Players this age have a lot of stuff that goes on in their lives that can change the course of their careers. I think it definitely means that he's farther along than a lot of these people that tend to get, tend to have been hyped before. So it's very encouraging, I think. Kartik, let's talk about what's going on in the championship. Not much has changed, but I still think it's interesting to talk about what has happened of late. Because the five teams at the top of the table all came up with big victories since the last time you and I talked. Middlesbrough is still two points up on the pack in first place of the second division after their 2-1 victory on the road at Bolton. Kind of an obligatory result given Bolton is going to go down to the third tier, but still three points is three points at this point in the season. Burnley stays in second place after their 2-1 win over Brom, a very good road victory there. Brighton keeps on rolling. Chris Hutton's team, a 5-0 result over Fulham. 2-1 victory for Hull at against Wolves. A good result there, getting Hull back in the win column. And then Derby got a 1-0 victory at Charlton. The only team in the top six that didn't win this weekend is 6th place Sheffield Wednesday. They had a 1-1 draw at home to Ipswich. They have a 5-point gap on Cardiff, though. We're down to... 
four matches left well, big, in the season. Big, well, the big game is, of course, uh, this midweek. I don't I don't know if it's Tuesday or Wednesday, but uh, Middlesbrough tra- travels to Turf Moor to take on Burnley. Mm-hmm. Now, a draw there would probably serve Brighton's purposes to get them right back into the automatic promotion fight. Although maybe they want uh, Burnley to lose so they could pass them, mm-hmm. but they could actually still win the championship if... Absolutely. And they're the, they're the informed team if... Uh, there's a draw there, so some interesting things coming as uh, that match takes place, and that's uh, that's a six-pointer. So Brighton is at home against QPR. They will probably win that one given their form and the quality of QPR. And you've got to think that given Burnley is within two points of them, they just want Burnley to pick up the fewest points possible. So if they win and Burnley loses, Brighton all of a sudden is in one of the automatic promotion spots. They'll be in second place if that happens. Right. I mean, we always have to remember the championship, the, the being the champions of the championship. Uh, last season, we saw uh, the last day of the season, Watford really didn't care, and Bournemouth got the title. But what difference did it make? They both went up. Yeah. So th- that's that's a similar thing. I, I guess Brighton probably doesn't care whether they're first or second. Yeah. Second. Second is the same as first in that division. Nobody. Uh, nobody re- really remembers two years on who wins the championship. They only remember if they're still in the first division at that point. Kartik, let's talk about briefly some of the results that we haven't mentioned, uh, mostly because they don't really have an effect on any of the races right now. I'm just going to read them off, and you can tell me if anything jumps out to you. On Saturday, Watford got a one nothing result at West Bromwich Albion. Watford, a team that has struggled for points over the last few months, picking up three points on the road right. there. Hilaria Gomez made two penalty saves in this game, so that's the only really significant takeaway. He's had a great season. We've talked about him a lot on this pod. Uh, otherwise, Watford has just completely kind of collapsed other than having a very, very good goalkeeper. So mm-hmm. uh, might have to rethink things for next season. They'll, they're safe, of course, though. Southampton, still with European ambitions, gets a late goal from Sadio Omani at Goodison Park. Romero Funes Mori had given the Toffees a lead early in the second half. 1-1 result adds another draw to Everton's draw column, league leading 14th. Southampton probably misses out on a couple points that could really help them if they are going to try to qualify for Europe. I'll just pause there, Karchik. I think it's almost a good thing if Southampton doesn't qualify. I wouldn't say a good yeah. thing, but they're, they're, they're done no, they were done no favors this year by qualifying for Europa League. Right, and so they ended up having to toss it away, yeah. I remember. Yep. So I think, I think it was, it's probably best to finish 7th or 8th, uh, finish just outside the European positions. This, by the way, they finish in the top 8 will be three consecutive seasons for Southampton in the top 8. Think about that. Think about that. Uh, that's that pretty amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's something that you can't say for Chelsea after this year, probably. Right. Yeah. Right. Correct. Uh, and the one match we haven't talked about, another team that still has viable European ambitions, particularly since they have a game in hand on West Ham, two games in hand on Southampton, Liverpool with a very strong three points at a Bournemouth team that had been surging up the table. Two to one is the result there. Josh King with a very late consolation goal gets the cherries on the board. Liverpool, Kartik, this is, this is something that you said could happen as the year goes on. Start to gel under Jurgen Klopp. They're still involved in two competitions, but they are clawing their way back up the table, and they're clawing their way in position to uh, get get the European place that maybe they might have end up missing out by losing to City in the League Cup final. Right. Yeah. Well, they might they might be in the Champions League next year anyway if they win the Europa League. So very true. Uh, and I, I wouldn't bet against them at this point. Although I I still think Sevilla are the favorites in that competition. Uh, for obvious reasons, and they've won it the last two years. But, yeah, Liverpool looked good again. Uh, Origi, uh, another good performance. Sturridge, uh, <laughs> Sturridge is 
looked really good. I mean, that was a that was a nice. Uh, all nice of a, move. all of a sudden, there's a depth of attacking options at Liverpool that's yeah. become very enviable. And a uh, little, and we talked about this in the midweek show. A little bit scary as we're trying to project into next season. We have five matches midweek. And- I should I should say also significantly they're they're continuing to win without Jordan Henderson. Which yeah, I I was a little bit concerned about that. Amory Sean is now out for the rest of the domestic season. If they make the Europa uh, League final, he should be back for that. Mm. Uh, five matches midweek in the league as teams start to make up some of those matches in hand that we've alluded to. Manchester City is going to be at Newcastle on Tuesday. I think most people would think Manchester City rightfully is a favorite there. The question I have here, Kartik, is based on the short turnaround, short rest, and the fact that this game doesn't mean a ton for Manchester City. What kind of rotation are we going to see here? Because if they screw around a little bit, they could start to bring fifth place back into view. At the same time, they're starting to get players back. We saw it in Samir Nasri is playing again. Raheem Sterling has been cleared. So they have a little bit more depth they can rotate in for these games. Yeah, Nasri now has gotten injured again, so he's not going to play oh, against geez. Newcastle. Yeah, so we'll see if he's back next week because uh, Silva can only play once a week with his current injury, and, and the preference would, would be to play him in Europe, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, a, a, maybe Silva can play tomorrow, but then he's not going to be able to play Sunday against Stoke or Saturday against Stoke. Uh, which brings, hopefully, obviously, uh, by that time, Sterling can go a full 90 or go 70 minutes. The big question here is Newcastle. Newcastle got that result. Uh, This is their game in hand. They need to get out of this. They have not beaten, in fact, forget beating. They have not gotten a draw against Manchester City in the league since, I believe, 2007. Wow. yeah, it's something like 12 or 13 successive losses. Most of them are multiple goal losses. Uh, this is one of those games where, and I think we've talked about it before on this pod, Richard. I'm not sure if you were hosting the entire time, but every time Manchester City would be in a dip in previous seasons, and then they would Newcastle would pop up on the fixture list and they'd beat them 5-0, everyone mm-hmm. would say, oh, City's back. But it wouldn't be that. It's just been one of these series historically that um, is uh, is really one-sided. And... and uh, you have to think that um, if uh, if Newcastle's not careful, it could be like that again. Uh, mm-hmm. Maybe it's a bonus game for Newcastle, right? Because this is uh, the, the most difficult game they have remaining besides the Spurs game in the final match of the season where um, it's conceivable Spurs will have nothing to play for. It's also conceivable Spurs might be fighting for a title, and that would make them nervy. So mm-hmm. uh, we'll see. This will be an interesting one. And the only other thing I want to bring up here is that this is kind of the same point in the year where two years ago, Yaya Toure, in this fixture, at this venue, had that very impressive performance that helped catapult Manchester City to that title. I believe he scored two goals that day in a 2 nothing victory, I think it was, at St. Yeah, James' and that, Park. Yeah, and that was a game where um, Roberto Mancini was still the manager at the time, controversially mm-hmm. uh, decided to put on a def- uh, uh, Nigel de Jong, a defensive midfielder, and pull out an attacker. I think it was Ed Dzeko. And everybody thinks, what's he doing? And it was just so Torrey had the space to go forward and uh, rampage forward. And, uh, and and scored two goals and, and was uh, and could have scored a few more. It was it was really impressive. That was 2012, by the way. Yeah, me. so that would have been four years ago, not two. Sometimes I get the city titles a little bit confused. Uh, Wednesday's game, we have West Ham versus Watford at Upton Park. Very big match there for West Ham if they still want to challenge for fourth place in the league. They're still not completely out of that. Another match that really affects that pursuit of fourth place, Manchester United should be expected to get full points at home against Crystal Palace. Remember, though, Crystal Palace is coming off of back-to-back results, including a draw at the Emirates this weekend. Manchester United, we 
We don't need to talk about the fact that they haven't looked good for quite some time. The biggest match on Wednesday, though, is Liverpool versus Everton. Liverpool surging up the table, one of the best teams in England right now. Everton looking more mercurial by the result, more ineffective by the result. Uh, they seem to be stuck in neutral at this point, Kartik, and although they aren't playing poorly, they certainly don't seem to be at all dangerous. You know, and Lukaku's goal-scoring form has, has now eluded him, so they're not getting goals. So defensively, they're a little bit better, and uh, Roberto Martinez has had to tweak with things at the back, but I just... Uh, I don't know. I see this game as probably being a rampage. It's yeah. probably be th- three or four nil. Uh, we've seen Liverpool do the, do that to Everton before, and uh, it would be it would be a stunner if this was even a draw. The way those two clubs are going right now, and it's it's so sad because uh, earlier in the season when they played, and and obviously it was a draw at Goodison. Brendan Rodgers is fired after the match. It seemed like Everton, having held John Stones, having Lukaku in good form uh, at the time, Kone was playing well, was playing out in wide areas, and and. Uh, 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 Ross Barkley was back and had, had, had started brightly that uh, Everton could push for the top four and, and Liverpool was in free fall. And then uh, you, you, you appoint Jurgen Klopp. There are only a handful of coaches on, uh, out there, Simeone, Klopp, uh, a couple of guys that really can change not just um, results, but the, 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 the vibe and the spirit around the club. And lo and behold, Klopp comes in, Liverpool, it's all positive, it's all... It's all uh, exciting and and uh, it's a new lease on life and Everton uh, have now slipped back into uh, oblivion as very much the second club on Merseyside so it's it's a very sad time I think for Toffee supporters Mm. one more midweek match is going to take place on Thursday at the Emirates West Bromwich Albion not very dangerous right now Arsenal might find a way to make them dangerous we've seen Arsenal have trouble getting three points against teams in this matchup before uh, Kartik and I are going to be back again soon to wrap up action in the Premier League not exactly sure if we're going to do a midweek show it's possible but either way we'll be coming back to you uh, within a week to talk about the weekend's results in the league we're also going to be on another podcast here soon you might want to check our Twitter feeds for that but we're not going to do the same thing we did last week and give you guys an Easter egg if you uh, want to hear us talk about MLS you'll know where to find us but until our next show here for everybody at the World Soccer Talk family I'm Richard Farley Kartik enjoy your football the World Soccer Talk podcast is a production of World Soccer Talk and is executive produced by Christopher Harris and produced by Richard Farley You can get the podcast a number of different ways, including Stitcher, iTunes, TuneIn, SoundCloud, and Audioboom, or you can go to worldsoccertalk.com to download the show directly. To get in touch with one of the hosts, you can reach out to them on Twitter. I'm Richard Farley. Kartik is KKFLA737. Lawrence is L-O-Z-C-A-S-T, LawsCast. And Nipun is Nipun Chopra 7 Don't want to bother with Twitter? go ahead and reach out via email, richard at worldsoccertalk.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. 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 Mm